The comments from today's guest are in her individual capacity and not representative of the ACLU. Today's episode of Melanated Conversations, we amplify the voice of Leah Watson. Leah Watson is a staff attorney with the ACLU's Racial Justice Program, where she focuses on the criminalization of poverty. Previously, she was senior counsel in the Criminal Justice Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, where she led litigation challenging debtors, prisons, and excessive fines and fees practices in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Leah earned her JD from Harvard Law School in 2011. Prior to law school, she taught high school in Atlanta, Georgia through Teach for America, and she earned her BA magnum cum laude in communication studies and sociology from Vanderbilt University in 2006. Ladies and gentlemen, grab your pencil and paper because you're going to want to take notes and be sure to turn the volume up because this is a conversation you don't want to miss. Welcome to Melanated Conversations, our narrative and our perspective. Here on the podcast, we are amplifying the voices of Black women and sharing their powerful stories of transformation. I'm Tarian. And I'm Yana. Let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Melanated Conversations. I am your co-host, Tarian. And I'm your co-host, Yana. We are so excited to be back. We are now in season three. This is exciting for us. And uh, we've got a very special guest, as always, because we always bring the cool people on. Um, And we have with us today a very dear friend of mine, longtime friend of mine, an extraordinary individual, Leah Watson. Woo-woo! And so we are going to be chatting with Leah today about um, her amazing background um, and just share some of her story. And I cannot wait to get into this conversation. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, did you have something before I interject? Well, I was just going to say, Leah may talk about this a little more once we kind of get into our, our melanated chat portion. But Leah and I have known each other since what? We were like, five I think four it was five. kindergarten yeah 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 um we grew up t- together went to church and girl scouts and all the things and we have this weird <laughs> this weird thing that we call each other she's I'm her BLB and she's my BLB um which stands for big little brother and I'll tell you why because y'all remember the show um my brother and me no the wayans brothers the wayans brothers we're brothers we're happy and we're singing singing and we're colored yes we i for whatever reason we used to sing that song all the time and obviously watch the show and because leah's pretty much a genius so she's 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 ahead of herself but she's i'm a year older than her but I'm significantly shorter. But significantly shorter than her. And so the whole little big little brother type of thing. Oh. It yeah, sounded it's, all like when we the, were young. Like it people did. used to always say, are y'all sisters? We're like, no, we're brothers. Yeah, yeah. Which, which was interesting because we call it because I I call myself the big little cousin. That is so true. <laughs> 
because we're all I, on the same page. I am just a little person in the in the crew, um, <laughs> but I'll gladly take that. But um, anyway, so yeah, Lee and I have known each other forever and very close with her family and vice versa. And we've experienced so many things together, traveled and, and camping and pageants and graduations and all sorts of things. So anyway, we'll talk about all that later. We'll let Leah share um, some more about her story. But um, yeah, before always, we get into that though, I'm yeah, sorry. I'm okay. just ready to chat into because this is something I've been wanting. I've been I've been waiting so long to have this conversation to chat with Leah. Um, before we talk to Leah and about her story because she has a very significant story to share, I want to put on my. Uh, I'm I'm coming to you as literally literally Yana right now, <laughs> and I want to um, talk about uh, take us back to the wedding debacle. In circle 2009. I am so um, glad you asked about this. <laughs> I want to give our listeners a little context and I'm going to give you your opportunity to speak your piece on the matter because um, we want to clear the air. Um, so if y'all, just a little, um, a little backstory. Tarian's wedding was in um, 2009, like August of 2009. Mm. And we all were apart. Um, of her wedding. We were all part of the wedding party. Um, and some course of events. This was a very adventurous day. Um, and there was an incident that, that occurred that, you know, we left a bridesmaid behind. Mm. That bridesmaid that we left behind is on the line, Ms. Leah Watson herself. So we want her to share her story and her experience so we can get her full side of the story. And Terry, and I want you to listen closely. I'm all ears. I'm you here. think somebody <laughs> loves you and they don't. <laughs> take away. Oh, oh that's Okay. All right. Terry had nine bridesmaids. Nine. Nine, y'all. Nine bridesmaids. We were all getting ready the morning of the wedding. Everyone was bustling around. Tyrion, this was like, it was like you said, it's 2009. Mm -hmm. So it was a whole different wedding trend then. Like we all had to have the same dress, yeah. shoes. We had to have our hair the same way. And I mean, Mm. Um, that's because you had just cut yours everybody, oh. else, everybody else had to wear their hair one way and so we're all getting ready doing our thing and for the first time possibly ever in my life I was early because I didn't want to hold up the train I was ready to go um Tyrion's husband Dre surprised her with this really nice limo um the morning of the wedding and so we were all ready to go me, Leah Watson, who is never early, was early. Mm -hmm. I get my stuff together. I go down to the limo, put my stuff in the limo, my purse, all that stuff. And then no one is down there. So I go to the, I was like, well, okay, I'll go to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom. I didn't go back upstairs to the suite. I was going to the bathroom on the first floor of the hotel. And it was taking a real long time. And, you know, normally if someone takes a long time in the bathroom before you, you, you really don't want to go in um, yeah. up there. But it was a handicapped accessible bathroom. And so the person who came out um, was a person in a wheelchair. So that made sense why it took so long or whatever. So I go to the restroom, come out. The limo is gone. 
There is no sight of Tyrion, any of the other eight girls wearing my dress, or anyone else that I know. And so I walk up to the hotel manager and I was like, have you seen anybody wearing this? And he was like, oh, they're gone. And I didn't have a cell phone. My cell phone was in the car, uh, was in the limo. No one clearly thought about me to even check on me and see that I was missing in this hustle and bustle. And um, that you could only call local numbers. So my mom, well, I grew up in Rotorag. My family moved in 2002. So she has a phone number with a different area code and they wouldn't let me dial long distance. And so I couldn't get in touch with my family to transport me from um, the hotel to the church. Thankfully, I called a friend whose number I happened to remember and she came and got me. Eventually, by that time, Tyrion's dad came looking for me because they had finally missed me. But it's my understanding y'all were halfway to the church and hadn't even thought about me. So now people ask me to be a bridesmaid. I ask how many. And I've been in other big weddings, but I have never been left. <gasps> oh, so thank you. We goodness. appreciate you for sharing that. And um, I want to um, open it up to Tyrion now for <laughs> her to, sure. to, to share her side. My, of my rebuttal. rebuttal. Yeah, what is your rebuttal, um, Tyrion? Because we're calling a thing a thing today. You left a, a friend. You left a friend. Well, well, well. Let's 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 be clear. Let's be clear. Uh, that particular day, uh, I was the bride. I was the person that was getting married. I was not in charge of 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 any of the flow of how things were going. I hey, I this is where you stand. This is where you march. This is when you cut the cake. This is where you throw the garter, like uh, throw the bouquet. But those are the things I'm giving instructions on how to do things. Okay. Now, yes, did I have a number of bridesmaids? Yeah, I had a lot. It was a lot of y'all. It was it was a gang. It was a whole gang of you of you of you, you ladies. Uh, however, I, I didn't drive the limo. I, I didn't set the time for everybody to be downstairs. You didn't miss your friend either. Oh, no, 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 no. So here's what happened, Leah. We are in the limo. I didn't do a head count. Because uh, like I said, I wasn't in charge. It was some other people that was in charge of gathering every, everybody, I think. Uh, but we are all getting in the limo because it is a lot of y'all and y'all all have the same dress and the same hairstyle except for Yana. Um, <laughs> we are on 6.30 and we're in the limo and realize like one two three seven, <laughs> man this number is a little small and in terry's offense because she was going through some of the most um <laughs> on her wedding day like it was a whole issue with her with makeup and she yeah. was stressed about that and so um you know, we were trying to calm her down. She was like, where's Leah? How did we forget Leah? Oh my God, supposed to be? And, and, and we're trying to calm down. And we we're like, like what, halfway on 630? Yeah, I yeah. thought we had turned or tried to turn the limo around. I was going to ask, did we come back and get you? No. So we didn't. I don't know why I thought we, we did. So we mm. didn't come back and get you. No. Listen, I think the discussion was whether to come and get you, maybe we found out that you were already on your Or way. did your dad end no. up calling and say like, hey, I got her and okay. I think that your dad called because I called my friend um to come and get me. And I wanna say at some point your dad called the hotel. 
So while I was waiting on her um, to come by, he called and I said that it was, I think I wrote with her. So I think I said like, it was fine, but I had no way of getting in contact. And even my family didn't know because my phone was in the car. Yeah. And I think I remember like everybody putting, everything was like in the trunk of the the limo. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, We can, can we all agree that we can laugh about this story now? I'm not laughing. Oh, really? <laughs> that was an interesting. Clearly, there's still some healing. I'm telling you. <laughs> I no, no, I get it. It was, it was a lot going on that day, and um, I was just like, Terry, we got to talk about this because I know Leah. We we never really got to hear her side of the story and how. Yeah. Um, because I don't like I don't remember all the events. I can't remember like what ended up happening, but. Thankfully, the wedding ended up being beautiful. It was beautiful. And Tyrion was a beautiful bride. Yeah. Uh, thank you, friend. Thank you. And y'all were beautiful bridesmaids. Every single one of y'all were. Yeah, thank we you. A great yeah. time. But I'm not going to hold you after your wedding. Because we, me and Cordell got married, right, like, literally a like month, a month after. after. Yeah. Um, and we have been toying with the idea of actually planning a wedding. And I told him, I was like, no, we can just go to the, let's just go to the courthouse. <laughs> God, no, it's too much. <laughs> Entirely too much. It's too much. <laughs> well, no, thanks for sharing that with us, Leah. Yes. And again, we we we're sorry. We're sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. If I, this is my public apology to Leah, I apologize that we forgot about you, that we left you, that we marginalized you, that we othered you. Yes. Um, in that bathroom and in that lobby at that hotel <laughs> on August eighth, two thousand and nine. I am sincerely sorry. Uh, that we left you. I'm glad we found you, though. <laughs> I'm glad you found me, too. And uh, I accept your apology as I did then, but this is something that we will be discussing until we die. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm here for it. I am always up for the discussion. Always. <laughs> but just a, a special takeaway for our, our, our special friends, our listeners of the show. Um, check on your girls. No, This is why we go together in groups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Check on your bridesmaid. No bridesmaid left behind. No bridesmaid left whenever behind. We, whenever the world reopens and we start having adventures again together, just make sure we stay together. Double up. Double up. Double up. Let this be another reason you don't go into a bathroom when it takes too long for someone to come out. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think we're going to go into our melanated chat portion of the show um and yeah and so i think yana's gonna take the first the yeah first so part. i just want to want you to expound a little bit more just tell us a little about you what are your roots um you know how did you grow up roots that is a deep question <laughs> mm-hmm. um well hi everyone i'm leah watson i would say my roots are in arkansas i grew up in arkansas both of my parents are from Arkansas and they both have very large families um, based there. And so I would say my roots geographically are in Arkansas with regard to how I grew up. Um, I grew up with my sister and my parents. I would say our roots were based on faith and God, um, education. I would also say that good humor teasing that you may have seen so far goes deep into my roots. 
Um, and then I would just kind of describe myself as someone who is a sister, a daughter, a black woman, an advocate. All of those are part of, I guess, who I've become. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and I don't know, did y'all, I know you kind of touched on it a little bit, Terry, and how that, you know, y'all been knowing that y'all have known each other since what the age of five, since kindergarten, mm-hmm. how did y'all yeah. meet and, you know, become friends? Yeah, we met, we went to the same church, um, Mount Pleasant Baptist Church on Ringo Street in Little Rock. But I think that we actually became friends in as much as however much you can be a friend at five um, through Girl Scouts because we were in Troop 68. It was a Girl Scout troop that was through our church. Mm-hmm. And we spent a lot of time in Girl Scouts, but also in church activities. I think throughout the time that we were growing up from kindergarten to um, senior year, mm-hmm. we did a lot of the same activities, um, extracurricular activities. We both did dance and Briefly, we were at the same dance studio, but I think we spent a lot of time, both of our families were very involved with church, so we would be there not only on Sunday, but on Wednesdays, mm-hmm. on Saturdays, mm-hmm. not let there be something available on Monday, like we spent a lot of time there, so it was kind of a, um, it was like a bedrock of my experience growing up, and it was really influential on my culture as I grew up, because I went to predominantly white schools that I felt at the time um, just kind of excluded, or as you said, othered often. Mm-hmm. And so church was someplace, church, um, dance, my brief, very brief stint in softball, um, <laughs> were all like every, every other aspect of my life was dealing with Black people, and it just balanced out being so much more. So I really looked to those experiences and then Terry and I became friends one of my earliest memories of us was camping it just seems yes. so weird for me to camp now but <laughs> we were camping and we I think I fell out of the tent you did you absolutely yes. did and I thought a bear was coming <laughs> um so no we haven't confirmed the bear however no. um in the night I fell out of the tent Terry was in my tent and yeah and, and, and we're talking about platform tents, because I know some people think of a, a traditional tent that's right oh, on the yeah. ground. So mm-hmm. these were platform tents that were, that were le- um, elevated, to, mm-hmm. excuse me. Um, and then they're far, fairly large because multiple people could sleep inside of them. But, they, you know, because it was elevated and there's still openings on the side, you know. Yeah. Happen. So we would have our sleeping bags in the tent. Yeah. And so there would be multiple people in the tent with the sleeping bag. I don't know. I vaguely remember thinking somebody maybe kicked me, but I know that I was sleeping and I fell. Yeah. And then I heard a rustle that I thought yeah. could be a bear. Right. But yeah. <laughs> we had like Tyrion said, we had a lot of a lot of time together and her phone number is the first friend's phone number I remember memorizing. I still know it. By oh my gosh. Years later, we spent pretty much all of our time together. Um, definitely the person that you would like beg your parents at the church, like, Ms. Yancey said I can come over. Can I come over? Yep. So you ask your mom. She'll be nicer. <laughs> I'll, ask, right. I'll ask your mom. <laughs> facts. Big facts. I was, I was telling uh, Yana the other day, I was like, I pretty sure besides like going to Brinkley and like 
spending summers there. It was like Leah's house was probably one of the only other houses I was ever allowed to spend time at and spend the weekends. I spent, I felt like I spent a lot of weekends. Yeah. I lived at Charles' house. We came house. to our family reunion. I, I sure still did. have family members who ask about her. Aw. I'm kind of sad. Wild. All the times I came and visited you, you never And I never took you to live. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, We're family. We absolutely are family. And like Leah said, you know, um, so many, her roots are, 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 are certainly, certainly deep. And you described yourself as an advocate. Um, and before we kind of go more into that, um, I just want to talk a little bit about your educational background. And, and I had, we hadn't stated this before, but Leah is an attorney and, and we'll talk more about that as well. But I, I would just want to, would like for you to share with us your experience as a black woman, woman uh, you know, attending these Ivy League um, universities um, and, and how that experience was for you. You, you attended um, Vanderbilt for undergrad and then you went on to Harvard Law School. Um, and so I would just like for you to share your experience as a black woman in the, within those institutions. How was that for you? Yeah, so you nailed it correctly. I went to Vanderbilt undergrad. I majored in communication studies and sociology. And then I went to Harvard for law school. I had a really positive experience at both institutions. I love Bambi um, very deeply. And I really had an amazing experience at Harvard as well. I think from a transactional standpoint, they serve their purpose, right? I went to learn, I went to meet people and network. I was able to get a job jobs after I graduated and then to just leverage those connections in various ways. Um, so I felt prepared for the tasks that were coming. Um, on a different standpoint, though, I think there is something to be said about attending predominantly white institutions and what that feels like as a Black woman. And I think a lot of times that can feel maybe isolating, isolated in certain respects. I had to get used to being the only black person in the room. Um, and I think just one, which is something that I feel very comfortable with now in my professional life, but that comfort is just kind of honed over years of being the only black person, sometimes being expected to speak for black people. Like how do black people feel about this as if there's one, um, only one opinion. Um, but I think also it's just to see day in and day out how people assume that you don't belong and that might be with seemingly innocuous questions like, oh, what sport do you play? And I am the least sporty person ever. Like I don't like balls or running or jumping. <laughs> so that's not gonna be my, my area. But um, yeah, so I think people just assume that you don't belong and it comes out so many different ways. It might be that question. They assume their assumption that you don't belong might be the basis of them assuming that you're there because of affirmative action, as opposed to the reality that your scores and your application, your scores could have been higher and your application could have been tighter. And they, that idea never really crosses their mind. Mm -hmm. I will say at these institutions, um, I had, I saw racial tensions happen on campus. And there were, I mean, I can go back to in my mind through the years and just see these major like issues that happened that were really important, seemed really important um, to black people, but I don't know if other people remember this. For example, my first year at Harvard, 
it was second semester um, and um, in law school, your whole grade is based on one exam at the end of the semester. And so that's a big deal. And that's the traditional format. Mm-hmm. So the week before exams um, starts circulating, this email starts circulating through the Black Law Student Association, members of the Black Law Student Association, BALSA, with a girl who's a 3L about to graduate and um, go on to a job on one of the most influential circuit courts, basically clarifying her comments that she had made to friends previously. And in her clarification, she wanted to make it very clear that she thought Black people were genetically inferior um, for a variety of reasons. And that Mm. type of negativity, so it kind of exploded into this huge, scandal, if you will. Um, it became national news. There were all these questions about like what should happen to her, if anything should happen to her, but just like going into finals, your whole your whole grade is based on this. You don't need other people telling you that you cannot do it, that you are inferior. All of that um, just kind of really weighs you down and impacts your ability to do your best. And so I think I love the institutions. I'm so happy that I went, but I everything is a trade-off. And in Nashville, it's easier because there were uh, multiple HBCUs in Mm -hmm. Nashville, uh, literally across the train tracks. But in um, Boston, it was a little bit, a little bit different. I will say that both schools had relatively high proportions, um, relatively high numbers. I think Vanderbilt, when I was there, had 500 Black people on campus, on the undergrad campus. So there were other Black people to meet and get to know and find friends. It wasn't completely isolated. And I think um, for HLS, the numbers are 10% per class, around 10% usually per class. It's not a set number. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were other people around. It was fortunate, but the ways that people can kind of interact with you, you see and you feel that they don't think you belong. You belong. Mm-hmm. And that weighs on you. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, what, what influenced your kind of your path, your decision to pursue the area of law, particularly because um, you serve as more in the area of racial and criminal justice. So can you share a little bit about that? Sure. I, so after I graduated from Vanderbilt, I did Teach for America. Teach for America is a two-year commitment to serving um, as a full-time teacher in underperforming schools. The mission is, the mission statement is one day all children have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. It still gives me chills. So I went, I did TFA. um, I taught high school in Atlanta. While I was teaching, I saw that so many things that were keeping my kids from learning happened before they even got to school. Like before you walk into the door of the school, maybe you have been dealing with things at home that prevent you from learning. Now we know like from the ways that kids' brains aren't fully neurologically developed, they can't learn unless certain needs are met. And so if you don't have housing, I would have students who didn't have housing that try to ride the MARTA train um, as long as it ran and then come to school if you don't have housing, you can't learn about the six themes of the Renaissance. If you don't have the health care that you need, students who were pregnant, um, malnourished because they didn't have access to healthy food, 
in and out of the hospital, not understanding how their bodies worked, and not receiving the quality of care that they needed, they can't come to my classroom and, and learn. Um, yeah. And even with the criminal justice system, I had a lot of kids being moved in and out of the criminal justice system and their families too. So we were facing, I think when I, when I had my babies and they were in my classroom and I had their attention, they can learn, but it was all of that other stuff that was preventing them from learning. And I just felt like I couldn't change the world from the bottom up. So I was thinking I would take the opposite approach and pursue systemic change um, in ways that would support the black community and just help kids who were like the students that I taught. So I went to law school and um, I spent a lot of time working on um, gender violence, domestic violence issues, and then also education, child advocacy issues. And then I went to um, a law firm, actually worked two law firms, and I did a lot of public um, pro bono work and then also some civic volunteering in my community, but I knew I wanted to do something that was based in that on making systemic change. I would say as, I mean, I guess you guys remember this too, we all had reactions to it, but it seemed like there were just so many black people dying. And it was like, we see it time, time, time again. Tamir Rice, all these people with the rise of Black Lives Matter. You just have a lot of dead black people who were unarmed. Even mm -hmm. if they weren't armed, they didn't have to die. And it felt like nobody cared. And so I was just trying to figure out how I, what can I do personally to help black people? And what can I do to keep black people from laying in the street? because um, I do have these degrees, I do have experience, I have connections. If I can't figure out a way to help, I don't know like who else I can turn to. And so I started learning more about criminal justice just because I, I was interested in black people. Mm -hmm. And as I started learning about criminal justice, I was trying to find an entry point. There are so many issues with our criminal justice system that it's not like one small tinker is like, we're fixed. Let's go. Racial justice yeah. achieved. Right. Um, and so one of the things that I saw that came out a lot, it was really highlighted. I've been reading about it, but it was really highlighted with the murder of Mike Brown is that you'll remember he was from Ferguson. Yeah. And Ferguson, the Ferguson police could basically arrest almost anybody because of the number of outstanding warrants that they had. And a lot of these outstanding warrants, when you dive into it deeper, were due to unpaid fines and fees. So people will get warrants for very basic things. I mean, you could get, for non-payment of fines, they would get fines and fees for what seemed to be basic things, like um, maybe municipal violations sometimes for your grass being too high um, in some places because your pants are too low, or it could be a traffic ticket, any number of reasons you get a fine, they don't feel criminal. And yeah. then if you can't pay your fine, then you get put on a payment plan. And if you miss a payment, it suddenly is a crime. And now there's a warrant for your arrest and all of these other consequences flow from that. And so, yeah. I'm sorry? It's almost like a trap. It's yeah. like designed yeah. to kind of, yeah. You know, it's a trip wire. Yeah. yeah. It's like once you just trip over that wire, it's really hard. So if you are living on the, on the edge, and you are not living on the edge with regard to your lifestyle, but living on the edge of poverty. Mm -hmm. And you can't pay. And a lot of times 
the amount that you are ordered to pay isn't based on your actual ability to pay normally. And so if you get ordered to pay an amount you can't pay and you miss a payment and now you have a warrant for your arrest. So at some point you go to jail, when you go to jail, you lose your job, you lose your housing situation if you can't afford to pay um, and you don't have a job. And so it just becomes a cycle where the consequences are so disproportionate to the initial, um, the initial infraction, if yeah. anything. I mean, I, I'm not concerned with 6.5 inch grass. So, I mean, that doesn't seem like a reason that you should be in and out of the criminal justice system. But for people that I have represented, not only has it been that you're in and out of jail, but in going in and out of jail, in and out of jail you can also lose your family. Mm. And um, I represented a woman who's, she and her husband both owed fines and fees. Neither one of them could afford to pay them. And her husband was sent to jail by a judge in Arkansas um, for failure to pay. She appears later that month before the judge. He says he's going to send her to jail for failure to pay. And she explained, my kids are at school. They're going to come home. I can't go to jail because I'm the only person and I'm the only adult in our household. Yeah. And he sent her anyway. And she lost custody of her children mm. and wasn't able to get custody back. Um, I represented her for over a year and a half and she still wasn't able to get custody. And when you think of these small Mm-hmm. infractions leading to losing your children that doesn't yeah. add up right yeah yeah no I I commend you on so many levels um just you know I mean I commend people who you know go the route of law and really you know go through and for you know for the right reasons yeah yeah mm-hmm. But for those who definitely pursue the path of criminal justice, that's a whole nother layer of, um, you know, I just feel like it takes a special person to do that and to really say like, hey, I really truly want to make a mark and make a difference. And um, if that means me, you know, because sometimes this route is well, more often than not, it's the less glorious route. It's the less paid. It's the most stressful. It's 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 a lot of things, a lot of trauma, a lot of things that that's wrapped up in it. But um, when you lead with the mission of serving and helping and trying to really provide true justice, um, and to because that's what we we need to see more of this. You know, Absolutely. we're on this fight. We need more of us that are willing to work behind the scenes or to go yeah. in into these 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 um particular industries that we often are disproportionately represented or yeah. fought for and I just commend you for saying like because there are so many paths that you could have chosen yeah glorious you know size and you're like no I, I really I want to fight for us and absolutely absolutely and the fact that she was able to see it at ground level yeah. and then say, Hey, actually, no, I want to, I want to take it a dip from a, from a different approach, but you see how these issues affect, um, different communities, black communities. Um, and a lot of times where we are disproportionately, we, we are, you know, in, in, impoverished, impoverished, um, and how that vicious cycle is just that we're kept in, I mean, it, it was so reminiscent just listening to you kind of explain and break down the whole thing with, you know, like having these kind of misdemeanor infractions and then you're having to pay fees and fines. And if you're unable to pay, then you're sent to jail. 
um, and just was for me, and I don't know legal legal stuff that well, <laughs> <laughs> legalese or any of that stuff, but um, it was reminiscent of the 13th Amendment and just that loophole of how they, mm-hmm. you know, they, I mean, they basically just- Just pipeline to prison, basically. Yeah, pipeline to prison, but you know, keeping the idea, the ideology of slavery intact one way or the other. We're just gonna, we're gonna say you're free, um, we may sign a piece of paper that says you're free, but we've got a lot of loopholes that basically keep you enslaved in one way or the other. And like you said, yeah. that has so many like ramifications, so many like, there's so many domino pieces to that. Absolutely. I think back to our conversation that we had with Dr. Tracy Baxley of social mm-hmm. justice parenting. And we had with your friend, Christine, that was talking about how, you know, with transracial adoption, a lot of it is tied to, you know, the fact that black people are not even considered a lot of times or given the opportunity to say, Hey, I'm sorry, that's probably not what you were going to say. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's oh, what I was touching oh, on. Like when yeah. Leah touched on the point about, you know, families being, you know, broken up for like things from minor offenses, yeah. I can imagine, uh, losing your entire, losing your children mm-hmm. over a, let's say something as simple as a parking fine. Right. Like, Right. It's definitely a huge issue. And it happens. I primarily deal with it on the front end with the fines and fees aspect, but it also happens on the back end as well, where Mm -hmm. when people are released on probation or parole, that supervision system is just another way to funnel people back into prison because a condition of your probation or parole is often to pay your fines, fees, and costs. and everything that the judge orders you, if you go before the judge and the judge orders you to um, a period of probation where you have to pay off your fines and fees, you have to go to be tested for drugs every month and you have to go to a drunk driving class. You have to pay for every aspect of that. And even when you have to, let's say the judge um, orders you to community service, in most places you have to pay for community service as well. So everything costs something. And if you can't afford to pay because payment is a condition of your supervision, your probation can be revoked. Your parole can be revoked. That's a huge issue in Arkansas where technical violations of probation and parole are a large driver of the incarceration crisis. And so it could be that you've done something that we don't see as criminal maybe like your grass is too high or you ran a stop sign we see a lot of seatbelt enforcement when police just need something to ticket on mm-hmm. um, but you also see it with larger offenses let's say that there has been a crime that you were convicted of you still should have the opportunity to move forward and supervision Basically, the supervision net is just a catch-all that creates a cycle of people going in and out of incarceration when they don't need to. Like, we have way too many people in incarcerated in jails and prisons that don't need to be there. Yeah. It's an open question of who actually needs to be in a, in a cage. But putting mm. that aside, mm. assuming that there are some people who need to be in a cage, it's still not these, we, when we think about criminals, we think about um, something that looks completely different 
from these technical violations. Right. Um, and I, that whole aspect of the problem is really, is just very pronounced for people in um, low-income communities and people of color who just keep getting caught in the cycle. And also when you can't afford to pay, it's not just that you go back to jail or prison. I mean, that's a, obviously a major thing. But there's other consequences that stem from that, what we would call collateral consequences. Mm -hmm. And a lot of places you lose um, your driver's license. In 46 states, I believe, you can lose your driver's license for um, a wealth-based reason, that, like you fail to pay. Wow. Um, and that can be a cause of revoking your driver's license. In most places in this country, you can live and work and thrive be a fully functioning member of society without a driver's license. Right. right. And so right. that too affects your ability to get to work, to um, to go to work, to pick your kids up, to take care of your family and just live. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. what we see is that a lot of people end up driving anyway because they don't have an option, but driving on a suspended license is a whole new charge with higher fines. And then it just continues to compound. You also in over 40 states, can lose the right to vote because you haven't paid your fines and fees for a wealth-based condition. It could be that you haven't paid your fines and fees. It could be that you haven't, because you haven't paid your fines and fees, you haven't completed the requirements of um, parole or probation. I mean, there's a different states structure it differently, but the fact that you can lose your right to vote, right to serve on a jury, you can lose the right to obtain government benefits, like your government benefits, you can stop receiving government benefits because you haven't paid um, your outstanding court debt. All yeah. of these things just affect your ability to live. And for people who are already marginalized and just trying to make it, mm -hmm. any one event, any one of these things can push them over into homelessness, into mm -hmm. just push them back into that cycle of poverty. And I... I met with people on the ground and see them and talk to them. And it's like, just when I got back on my feet, um, something happened. Maybe someone got sick. Maybe you got sick. Your car had an expense you didn't anticipate for any variety yeah. of reasons. If you miss that one payment, you're back in the cycle again. And it's like, oh, I just got a place. And now I've lost my job and I lost my place and I'm being released and just starting back over. Um, without the resources you need to just be able to live. Yeah. Wow. Listen, thank you for breaking this down for us. Yeah. Uh, this is important information that a lot of people um, are not aware of. Yeah. And you don't connect the dots and how yeah. like something is so, like you said, so can be so small and not yeah. like like people speed and run lights every day and yeah who, who who can you know there's I'm still trying to wrap my head around like I mean I understand it because I I see it every day but absolutely um, but how something that you know disproportionate can is acceptable is exactly acceptable. I, th I think that and that's the that's the thing right there the, the fact that this is okay to even happen that yeah, it's legal yeah that is legal that is the the mind-blowing thing about this whole whole thing yeah um, it definitely. is legal and i mean people i've spoken with people who said like i thought this was this feels like a debtor's prison and i everyone knows like debtor's prisons were outlawed years ago but 
as a practical matter, we still see this phenomenon, which we call the criminalization of poverty, mm-hmm. where basically you are, your punishment in the criminal justice system, your criminal justice outcomes are tied to your economic resources. And it's a huge issue. It's not just with the fines and fees. It's not just with probation. Another way we see it is with bail, where people are sitting in jail without being convicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people are in jail. I think one study said that every year we have 11.7 million people in county and city jails per year. And over half of those people haven't been convicted. Most of them are pretrial detainees um, and people who are there for low-level, nonviolent traffic offenses. Wow. But the fact that you, I mean, think about how bail works, right? You are there, you're ordered to pay an amount. Um, and if you can't afford to pay that amount, you have to sit in jail until you can go to trial. Some people work with bail bondsmen, but often when you work with a bail bondsman, you have to put 10% of the total bail. You yeah. have to pay 10%. And if you show up for trial, you still don't get that money back. And so it really, just the average American only has $400 of savings. So anything that exceeds $400 for the average person in this country, they're not going to be able to pay it. They don't have it. And so we just have people incarcerated that don't, haven't been convicted of committing a crime and yeah. they just don't have the money. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, gosh, that's just, mm, that's heartbreaking. Um, you currently serve as a staff attorney for the ACLU and I've heard of the ACLU, but for our, for our listeners who are listening today, um, can you just kind of briefly give us an overview of what the ACLU is and the work. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to clarify that my comments today are in my individual capacity and not representative of the ACLU. Probably should have led with that, um, but that is my disclaimer. So the ACLU stands for the American Civil Liberties Union. It is a nonpartisan and nonprofit organization that has been fighting against government abuse and defending individual freedoms for 100 years. Um, a lot of the work that the ACLU is known for has to um, do with the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to choose, the woman's right to choose, um, the rights to due process, rights to privacy. But the organization itself, we pride ourselves on, the, on defending liberties that we feel like the government is trying to take away often. Um, I am a member of the Racial Justice Program at the ACLU. And the racial justice program is in pursuit of racial justice in a variety of ways. Um, We deal with race and criminal justice, race and economic justice, race and inequality in education, race and affirmative action, and then also race and American Indian rights. Um, In the past, we've also dealt with healthcare um, and We're also litigating some ways that race overlaps with the right to vote, like I was mentioning earlier um, about wealth-based conditions on voting, but it can look like that's, these are the big buckets, but that looks like work in education, health, housing, indigent defense, which is like the public defender system, 
jails and prison, juvenile justice, racial profiling, voting rights, affirmative action, and just human rights. No, thank you for, um, thanks for clarifying that and, and breaking that down. Um, you actually touched on one of, the, one of the questions I was going to ask is kind of what, how do you, I know racial, racial justice encompasses a wide spectrum of things and, um, and kind of what does that look like? So thanks for kind of breaking that down and, 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 sh and showing us how you are um, kind of working through those issues through the work that you do. So we commend you for that. Um, we Can also, yeah, go ahead. Oh, so one thing I just wanted, I mean, as you were talking about racial justice, I was thinking that racial justice lately has kind of been police brutality. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to clarify from the list of things that we work, that we are working on, that there's just every institution has a racial justice, um, opportunity, if you will, yeah. mainly because our, we know that our country was built on racist ideologies and it was designed to function in a way that doesn't allow black and brown people to um, live and with the freedoms and yeah. opportunities as white people. And so just thinking about racial justice, it involves like laws and police brutality, but it's mm -hmm. also in the minutia of life, the policies, practices, attitudes, actions, mm -hmm. anything that denies equity and power, access, opportunities, treatments, um, impacts outcomes between whites and um, black and brown people. All of that is racial justice. So we see it in all of the institutions, the major bedrocks of our community. And so I want to just be sure that as we're thinking about racial justice, we're thinking about it in the most expansive way mm -hmm. um, and not just limiting it to the criminal justice system. Yeah. Yeah. I, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I agree a hundred percent. I always tell people, um, especially a lot of times when I'm talking to white people and, and they, they're asking, you know, why, why so much emotion and, and all the things surrounding quote unquote, just, uh, the idea of the one pocket of the one pocket of and it's like you don't understand this has this it's is one piece of the one whole. piece of a whole pie yeah yeah exactly and if you truly look and study and learn about the the origin of this country the foundation of this country um it is ingrained in the fabric of america um, and so, yeah, I, I thank you for breaking that down even more. For it's us definitely and ingrained. I, I think that that is perfect. And it materializes every single day in every single way. Like if you yeah. send your kids to a school where students aren't performing, we have a huge education gap in America that doesn't have to be there. Black mm -hmm. and brown students can learn. They just need the resources and, mm -hmm. and the right space and appropriate approach to do so. That's it right. also happens in the healthcare system. I mm -hmm. mean, historically, we were experimenting on black and brown bodies, but even yep. now, the maternal mortality rate is insane. Yes. And the yep. gap between black women and white women, um, I think black women nationally, it's been estimated to be four to five times more likely to die as a result of childbirth. But mm -hmm. in New York City, it's 12 times. That's that just blows mm. up my I live in New York now. And the fact that if I had a baby here, I would be 12 times more likely to die, regardless of education, regardless of um, health, how healthy you are, that that difference makes a, I mean, it's a life or death difference right. um, that has 
racist roots, but it continues to ripple throughout society now, or even the fact that we have people living in food deserts because of redlining and other issues with housing, a lack of affordable housing. Everything that has racist roots has racist materializations today. And so it's not just something that happened years ago that we should get over, but it manifests in our lives every single day. And there it is, folks. <laughs> that right there. Yes. All of it. Uh, I'm glad that you, 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 you know, you broke that down. And hopefully for those, our, our friends that listen to us and you really truly say that you're wanting to do the work, that you really truly understand and recognize that it, this is, it's a full gamut. It is like, we, we, like we said, it's just not just little pockets mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the things that are quote unquote, um, what is it called? Um, trending yeah 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 performative yeah type of yeah yeah trending and we want to have show show our performative justice there's a lot of things that has to be dismantled in order for us to rebuild again so um so i do want i know you have you've launched a guide called protect um which protect um is an acronym uh, which I know you'll break down for us, but this guide um, that you created helps students of color know how to engage with law enforcement. Can you tell us a little bit about this guide? Sure, I can. I want to correct one small thing, though. Um, protect, as you said, is an acronym. I'll walk you through it. But the guide is actually a guide for law enforcement engagement with students of color. Ah. So PROTECT is a program that I created while I was at the Warriors Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Um, I was basically, if you remember a few years ago, it hasn't stopped. It didn't start a few years ago. It hasn't stopped since then. But there was a really big push of hashtagging things, living while black. And there were, it was every single week, like multiple reasons that people, black people were, there were multiple reasons that white people were calling the police on black people doing very mundane activities like grilling at the park, sleeping, selling water, all of these reasons. I mean, we saw this very recently with the Amy Cooper situation where Mm -hmm. she called the um, police on Christian Cooper because, and, and acted like he was threatening her life at Central Park. Yeah. Um, And so I was really concerned with living while Black um, because every single interaction between Black people and I believe that every single interaction between Black people and the police has the potential to be dangerous. And um, I was thinking also about the fact that this, everything that happens in society also happens on college and university campuses. And so we also saw just a, um, a rash of reports of living while Black type incidents on college and university camp- campuses. In April, 2018, Two Native American brothers were on a campus tour at their dream school, University of Colorado, and a parent on a tour called the police because they made her nervous and she thought they were odd. Mm. Um, she couldn't believe that they were a part of the school tour. In May 2018, a white graduate student called Yale Police to report a Black graduate student for sleeping in a dormitory common room. 
Mm -hmm. August 2018, a Smith College employee called campus police to report a Black student that seemed to be out of place while um, eating eating during a lunch break. And so I was, I developed Protect because on one hand, we have a lot of living while Black incidents. So we know that the odds of a Black person being reported to the police for something mundane are higher than they would be for a white student. We know the interactions with um, students, with between students and police can be dangerous and also campus police because we had um, a student in September 2017, a student leader at Georgia Tech having a mental health crisis was fatally shot by campus police. April 2018, a Harvard student who was having a mental health crisis had a violent encounter with local with local police. So we have a combination. We know that um, there's a heightened risk that black people, black students will be, that the police will be called to interact with black students. We know those interactions can be dangerous. And it seemed like a good way to um, make a difference would just be to start on college and university campuses because they already have a heightened responsibility for safety. When I was in college, you could call a police officer, a bandy police officer, and he will walk you home, he or she, they will send someone to walk you home. You can, there were like blue blue lights all over campus, you could push, they would come. I mean, campus police are already doing a little bit more than regular police. Um, camp, so it's just an opportunity to explore how these police interact with students of color. So PROTECT basically is an acronym and I will go through the different recommendations and then, um, explain how we implemented it. So the P stands for partner with community. This is basically focusing on community policing strategies um, to make sure the community is involved with creating public safety. Um, includes things like advisory groups, um, comprised of students and faculty on programs and policies, um, and thinking about ways that the police can interact safely with students in non-confrontational ways. The R stands for review of use of force policies. Um, this really has a focus on de-escalation and accountability. The idea of PROTECT is that we would compile the best practices, um, best practices for policing, and then the students could work with their individual campuses to determine how to implement these on campus. So these are big categories that have more information about where the pivot points are. And then the idea was that students would be able to figure out what's gonna be best for them. So we have partner with community, review of use of force, O is for open reporting, um, which requires the campus police to provide data on use of force incidents and detentions, disaggregated by race, ethnicity, sex, disability, English as a second language status, um, school versus non-school contact, just all types of demographics. Um, T stands for training on implicit bias and cultural diversity. Mm -hmm. um, this training is really important, but it cannot, right now there's a lot of discussion about divestment and police and a lot of the training ultimately involves in more investment into police, but it really should be transferring resources that are currently um, allocated to police to show that this is something that's a priority. Um, the E stands for eliminating profiling. Um, and this is based on any of the demographic factors. 
factors that I listed before, race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, age, gender, gender identity or expression, sexual orientation, immigrant, immigration status, disability, housing status, occupation, language fluency. There's a variety of ways that people are profiled. The C stands for coordinate crisis response. And this one is really key because college and university campuses have professionals trained to respond to crisis situations. And they know what situations frequently arise on campus. We know that there is an influx of drug and alcohol abuse. We know there are mental health disturbances. We know there are sexual or domestic misconduct um, that arises. And campus police, when you call for the police, like they send the police, but we know that there's other there are other professionals who have been trained to deal with these situations. And so um, we need crisis response teams where it's not the police who are expected to deal with everything when they haven't been trained to do so. That's not fair to the people who are in the situation and also it's an unfair, unfair expectation from the police. And then the last one, which is really key, is just transparent communication. And transparency is really key for all police, but especially from campus police, there should be policies on dictating use of force in, and in custody deaths, the procedures. When will the police release information? What types of information will be released? What situations does it apply to? Um, when should the police have a summary statement? I mean, sometimes it can feel like something happens and then it's really hard to get information, but we can outline what situations require procedures to um, report and what information should be reported to make sure there is trust between the police and community. So um, these are, that's a brief overview of the recommendations. And we partnered with the National Black Law Student Association to host a panel um, for law students, basically explaining these recommendations, these best practices, um, also brought in some people who are able to explain how to build community on campus, some community leaders, and then also campus police um, chiefs to talk about these issues. But the idea was that students, we can empower the students, train the students to on what the issues are around policing because everyone, every time something happens, people want to do something, they don't know where to start. And then each school could determine, students from the school could work with the school itself to figure out what is going to be required, what changes would be best for their space. Wow. Right. <laughs> That's amazing, Leah. Yes, absolutely amazing. Um, and if I have never told you this before, I'm saying this publicly, I'm making a lot of public statements today. Uh, <laughs> but I am proud to call you my friend. Seriously. That means a lot. Girl, I mean, okay, so um, are you going to run for public office or anything? You probably can't answer that. But. Hell no. <laughs> I'm just saying. No way. I, I, I respect your, I respect that. I respect that. I really, really do. Because some, I just, I respect that. Um, this is amazing work that you, my friend, are doing and Oh, yes, that oh, I have a little tear came to my eye. Yes. I see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> just the first tier of season, season three? Yes. Do a tear count. My tear count. But no, this is... Uh, <laughs> For on one hand, it's it's like it's almost kind of bittersweet in a way because you know I the work that you've done and you put behind this and and to create this is phenomenal and I I, I love this uh, but the fact that we need it is like yeah. you know yeah. so yes. if we have any listeners who are interested in talking more about what it would mean to bring protect to their campus I would love to speak with them yes yes, um, yes. because this is an idea that. Basically, I made up because I had a baby cousin um, who Tyrion, I don't want to say his name on here, but sure. Tyrion remembers us holding him. He was born when we were like 13. Yeah. And just thinking about him, he just graduated college. But when I came up with this, he was in college and I just wanted him to be okay yeah. while he was there. And um, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, but I feel like if we can make things happen on college and university campuses, we might be able to move things forward in a different way. And then hopefully that can build throughout um, the movement largely for reform and policing. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of just, you know, moving a needle and how we can do our parts. And yeah, and calling the, you know, giving, giving, putting out that call to action. Um, from, from your vantage point, what are some tangible ways that we as the average American citizen, black, white, brown, whatever um, can help push the line of progress forward. Um, and then my second, my follow-up question to that is just, do you feel hopeful um, just kind of in the state that we're in right now? Do you, do you see any signs of hope anywhere? Yeah, um, those, those are great questions. So I'll take them in the order you gave them with regard to what we can do to move things forward and pursue racial justice. I do think that there's a lot of things that each of us can do. The first I would start with is just internal reflection about our own experiences, how we have felt and experienced um, racial inequality or how we may have perpetuated it or participated in the perpetuation of racial inequality. So first is just reflecting, like, what does this look like in my life? How have I seen it? or how have I been a part of, and or how have I been a part of it, but identifying it for ourselves is key. And I think um, educating, education is so important, educating yourself. Black history, we have a lot of people, you know, everyone now is all woke, and we talk about being woke, but the reality is we have had to, African-American history is still kind of, a small subset that's almost separate from American history in the ways that it's taught in school. Yeah. There's a lot to learn about race and how we reached this point and how it has influenced the institutions that we were talking about previously. In each, if you dig into any institution of American life, you will see how race has permeated and um, racist ideologies have shaped it. And so I think part of it is just understanding how to talk about history and race. It's also how understanding how to talk about race generally because people don't want to talk about race. They might be offended if you mention race and it's something we all see, we all react to, we're all living in a system structured around it, but nobody wants to talk about it. So part of it yeah. is just like learning how to speak about race and then having those uncomfortable conversations um, in the wake of 
the murder of George Floyd and all of the protests, I have been having personally just having more uncomfortable conversations with people who ask how I'm doing or, um, you know, they reach yeah. out and they say like, I'm supportive. I don't know what to do or whatever. But I feel like part of it is like, on one hand, it's having those uncomfortable conversations. On the other hand, it's recognizing you just personally need to pull back. Um, because self-care as a black person, self-care is a form of protest. Come um, on. And so we have to take care of ourselves because it's heavy and it weighs on us. Um, and I think other things you can do are donating to organizations that are um, pursuing racial justice. There's a lot of organizations. There's a lot of organizations doing amazing work. And so I, I can't give a full list of organizations that you can, like that are racial justice organizations that you should donate to, but they, and they all have different approaches. Some at the grassroots level, um, some at a more structural level, but I would say finding an organization to support. Mm -hmm. um, a major way is voting. We have to vote. We have to vote. Like I can't say it enough. We have to vote. And we also have to vote beyond the presidential election. About to say, yes. Because the key, yes. the key positions that are making a difference, some of the key positions that are making a difference in our everyday lives mm -hmm. are at the local and state yeah. level. Your DA right. is going to determine if this police officer is charged mm -hmm. is a local position. That's right. And so you have to vote and be involved with, I mean, it's like not only voting, but holding people accountable. Have you called to Kentucky? Because Breonna Taylor's killers are still out there and we know who they are. So if call, email, all of these things, just be, being engaged, we can't make anyone indict her killers. We can't even make them fired at this <laughs> point. But I mean, that involvement is key and there's not, no change is given to us. It's all that we have demanded. And so I think just staying involved with voting and with social and with civic involvement is important. And then I would also say, you know, I recommend attending protests. You can attend protests if you want to attend protests. I find it to be very um, cathartic in a lot of ways to see that other people are experiencing my same reality. But like I said, all black people have the opportunity to protest just by being black and being healthy and happy and successful, our joy after all that we've come through is a form of protest. So you don't have to necessarily, I think we should give ourselves credit for the ways that we show up. And that really, that really matters also as a form of protest. I would also add supporting black businesses because the economic gaps are not going to solve themselves. We have to build resources within our community and um, volunteering, mentoring to help people wherever you are in your life, you can help somebody get to wherever that point that you are. So it might be um, having conversations with people, I, you can get involved in like more formal mentoring, but making sure that people at least know how you got to be where you are and what lessons you have learned so that we can have more people moving up the ranks and have a positive pipeline. I think are all ways that we could work towards racial justice. And then with regard to, am I hopeful? I ask myself this question a lot. I am hopeful. I am hopeful, but I am cautiously optimistic. I am hopeful on one hand because I feel like 
this time might be different. I see changes that have happened even in the last um, five, six years that make me hopeful. One, I'm having way more conversations about race with mm -hmm. non-Black people than I have ever had um, with people. And I feel like people are interested in learning more. They want to learn more. They are starting to see what we have seen all this time. Like Will Smith said, it's not new, it's just being recorded. Right. I feel like even with the recordings, they haven't always impacted people in the same way. I remember a week, I think it was in 2016, where Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed in the same week. Yeah. And there was video. And I just remember being, I was in corporate, a corporate law firm in my office with the door shut, crying, watching these videos. And everybody else in the office was just fluttering around, having a normal summer day. Yeah. And I felt like our hearts were broken, but nobody else's were. So I, I do see, I see movement in that way, even shifts that police officers are being fired yeah. and charged, but at least preliminarily fired because we had some of the major incidents that we have um, seen in the past. The police officers were on trial and still getting paid the entire time. Mm -hmm. So I think those things are progress, but it's not enough. And I am worried that the attention span of our country is short and that some of the actions that are- desensitized a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been yeah. desensitized and there's not a true, I'm worried that the commitments that we're seeing are something like, okay, now we're not gonna call it a master bedroom. You happy? Mm, As opposed right. to a true investment in the underlying structures, policies, practices, institutions, that are withholding racial justice. Right. And so I think I'm hopeful that, they, that this can be a pivot point, but I'm, op I'm still cautiously optimistic because we have a long way to go. I don't think that even with the police brutality, if it is not just guaranteed that like there, something happens um, where we know the police, and there's an instance of police brutality and then that officer is um, fired and charged and convicted. And a key part is not rehired because mm -hmm. we see a lot of police, even when they get fired, um, if there's an instance of police brutality, they might get fired from their police department. They end up, over 90% of those police officers are rehired by other police departments. Yeah. We even had yeah. a county in Florida that was advertising for police who have been fired for misconduct of this sort wow. hey you can come here we would love to have you and so wow. i think like that's even part of closing the loop we have to have accountability and we don't right now in this field so i'm hoping that we can do more i'm really inspired by the places that are um pursuing divestment of police in communities and also in schools um and i'm I feel like this is a moment that will be different. I've never had this many non-Black people call me to see if I was okay. And yeah. there were, I mean, I think part of it is like Instagram, like check on your Black friends, they're not okay. And I was not yeah. okay. But then it's also like having certain conversations and that's when I start to realize how little people know and how uncomfortable they feel talking about race. Even if you say something like, referencing them being white, they, they feel like it's kind of an attack. So I think there's a lot of education around race that must, and discussions about, around race that need to happen 
um, as opposed to efforts to incite violence or fear. Yeah, yeah. No, but thank you, thank you for sharing sharing that. Um, I agree. I think Yana agrees one hundred percent with everything oh, that you that you said, and and just kind of on the on the heels of your your um, your you didn't say hopeful optimism. What did you say? I said I was hopeful, but cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic, yes. Cautiously optimistic. Your your cautious optimism. Um, I share. We share in the same sentiments. I told Jan. I think it was yesterday. I saw. Was it a tweet or something where a young lady um, had said that she worked in a she works in a bookstore, and she said, you know, there are still books that people reserved to purchase about a month ago um, that have not been picked up in reference to, you know, white people wanting to do the work and learning more about um, racial injustices and and all those things. You know, we were- In a that lot of, moment, in the In field. that moment, yeah. yeah. And yeah, exactly. And she's like, where y'all at? Because it's a ton of books that have not been picked up. Um, and I was kind of like, man, like, you know, and, and like what you were saying, Leah, where people were like, you know, all right, well, we're going to stop, stop calling the master bedroom, the master bedroom. It's like, that's not what we're, we're asking for. No, we asked for justice. That's what we asked for. And if you want to help, uh, want to participate in the cause of moving progress forward and seeking justice, then by good grief, go pick up the books, people. If, if, if one of our listeners, you somebody that reserved a book and you didn't go pick up a book, go get the book. Start doing the work. It Start takes more than a black square to show Man. that you care. Exactly. And the Thank books you. are so important because even as black people, we don't know all the ways that things have been structured that's right against us and we don't see all of the we don't see all of the ways i mean i'm not that's not to say that the terminology doesn't matter i know they were talking about master bedroom i saw that there's a surgical instrument that was named after a surgeon who performed his experiments on black women black women mm -hmm. yeah i that's not to say that there's no value in changing those things or even that it's not feel good to see black lives matter painted by the white house because it certainly right. did to me but that can't be where it ends. Right. And I think the more, the work that is hard, that is needed is hard to do mm -hmm. because we have Absolutely. to figure out how to, how to restructure entire institutions. And we can't be afraid to scrap what we have been using for decades or centuries and try something new in order to really come up with a more equitable solution. But that, that work is really difficult. So mm -hmm. there are things that are really difficult that we don't know the solutions to. There are things that are difficult, but we know the solutions. Like I said, yeah. we know who killed Breonna Taylor. Right. We, it's not a question. And we know the gaps in the story as well from yeah. if there was a warrant, who the warrant was from, the reasons for the warrant, all of those things. So in, I think that we have to be willing to step up and, and do the hard tasks. Mm -hmm. But I think for a lot of people, black, brown, white, everyone, we, I think, I hope, I might be naive, but for a, a large subset of people, I hope that if they see the ways that the system was set up inequitably, they would see why it's not just slavery happened over 400 years ago. Yeah. Get over it. Yeah. Yes. I, thank you for that. And I, 
just to highlight that point again for our listeners, if we didn't drive that message in, please listen in and just understand it really takes you doing the hard work. This is not easy. Yes, the conversations you may have with your friends, um, your black friends, they may be angry and they have a right to be angry, but that doesn't mean that you, because you're in an uncomfortable space where you feel like you're, you can't handle it. You, this white fragility makes you not want to move forward in the fight. We can't, we're, we're not standing for that. If you really want to do the work, you have to be willing to do the hard work, the yeah. hard work. Absolutely. And I would add, we also have to have conversations around Black fragility as well, because we mm. have a whole dis- disproportionate reaction to Black men getting killed, but how are we showing up for Black women? Come on, and talk about it. And how are we showing it. up for our Black transgendered people? Talk and if about black it. Black trans lives don't matter, our Black lives don't matter. Talk so if about you don't it. feel as upset, as moved, as involved, I'm not surprised that we don't have, it's, I don't think that it is surprising that we are still asking for Breonna's Taylor, Breonna Taylor's murderers to be um, charged. She's a black woman. And I even remember being, going back to one of your earlier questions, Tyrion, mm-hmm. one thing I learned at Vanderbilt, I was taking a criminology course and they went through the, um, the, the case, the rates by which ca- cases were solved by race and gender. And it was very clear to me, I just remember seeing how low the rates were for violence against Black women and realizing there, looking at my paper, that my life didn't matter. And if something happened to me, statistically, it's unlikely that that person is going to be brought to justice as compared to Black men and even um, white women and other types, other races of women. And so I think until we can, like, we have racial justice is for everyone. And we also have to think about, like, why do we have videos of Black men pushing Black women into dumpsters or punching them or not showing up when we get killed? And for our transgendered people, why are we killing people? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I think think you're right. There are lots of conversations that need to be had. And that's not to say that white fragility isn't real because we see it all day, every day. But I think we have to dig deeper too into why we interact with certain people or what bothers us most as Black people, because I don't think we're doing a good job of standing up for everyone. Truth teller, truth speaker. Ooh. Man. This, I feel like I have we all my thoughts. I feel like we're going to need a part two. We're going to need a reoccurring Leah segment. I was literally thinking that. I was like, okay, so how we get her on just as a recurring set, like a set? <laughs> What's our monthly action news? What do we need to do? What's what are we doing? Topic? No, but seriously, thank you so much, Leah. Um, you've, even for Terry and I, you've um, opened our minds and unlocked so many things for us because. Yeah. We know that we have work we need to do as well. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, thank you. I'm working too. I mean, I think we all just have right. to stay works in progress. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, okay. So as we get, as we prepare to close and wrap, we do have a few um, kind of closing questions um, to kind of wrap our discussion first question is more around, we're still in 2020 um, and we know 2020 has kind of 
taking us along on a little journey. Oh. Um, 2020 is a cuss word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What we usually ask our guests, kind of what word or what power word is guiding them for 2020? Do you have a word that you'd be willing to share with us? Overflow. Mm. I just feel like I'm, I have things that I'm working towards, but my word for 2020 going into 2020 so I do all like the woo-woo stuff Mm -hmm. and write my journal my goals I did a self-evaluation of where I was on my goals halfway through the year all that stuff um huh I said you are me and yeah (laughs) I love that I I think it matters too and then even I like went back through some old journals to see like what I was talking about then and how that fits in but I would say I'm seeking overflow and I have to try to caution myself against writing off 2020 because it has been rough. Um, So I'm just looking for other ways to, all the ways that I can bring overflow of positive things into my life. Mm. That's good. I like that. I take back my statement about 2020 being a cuss word. That's a whole effort. I mean, it's still a cuss word, but (laughs) I feel like we, we just have to make the best of what it is. Yeah. But every time they come with something else, like when they came with those murder hornets, I didn't have time for that. And then we're talking about the bubonic plague. Is Girl! Now. You have to go. Locust and the earth shifting. How many plagues are we in right now? It's only supposed to be, what, 10? How many? We got to at least cut, it, have cut them in half. We got like five left, maybe. We, we are doing the most. <laughs> but I'm still hopeful. And I will say that by reviewing my journal, I saw that I had my goals. I feel like everything has kind of been on hold in 2020, but I did meet half of the things I said I was going to do. So Mm -hmm. even in the midst of pandemics, like we are making progress. We're just sitting at home all the time and not seeing it. Things we but where you should be sitting at home. Right. I was going to say, but sitting at home has actually, by us sitting some things have been moving, have things to move. It take, I feel like, you know, when you were kids and your mom had to like tell you to sit down somewhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> get in this house, sit down. And, yeah. And, and, and um, I feel like that's how we've been moved together is to all be to, to sit, to sat down somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So the work- I think uh, you're right because we have, it's like our attention span. Even things like Tiger King, when everybody was all on Tiger King, we're all, there is, I think, a uniformity of experience. I will also flag, though, sitting down is a privilege. And through this, something that I learned is only 20% of Black people can work from home. Yeah. One in five Black people are able to work from home. So we are definitely on the front lines, Mm. either in the medical sense, but just on the front lines that our work is considered essential and not compensated as such. And so... It's that too. I never thought that sitting home is a privilege, but it really is, especially yeah. when it's dangerous outside. Yeah, yeah. absolutely right. I, the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about how when your parents used to make, be like, sit down somewhere, but uh, being at Granny's house and, and it was storm outside, oh. and they sit down, be quiet, let the Lord do his, his work. work. Like, yeah. yeah, it's like, <laughs> so, yeah. you gotta let sit, let this storm pass, and it's chaotic outside. Uh-huh. It's like, going out going on outside let the lord do his work things and the storm and the storm passes the storm passes and and we can 
But know? think about those, even breaking that down, and I don't want to get too woo-woo, but even think sure. about that, you know, what do we do when, when, when grandma used to tell us that? You turn off the TV. Yeah. You get quiet with your thoughts. You That's pray. Right. That's so right. The same mm-hmm. thing can be applied now. You turn off these TVs. You get quiet with your thoughts. You pray. You, you write down your goals. You, you work through yourself through this process, through this period. Absolutely. And I'll add to that too, when you're talking about a storm, while yes, sometimes storms can be violent and sometimes they can cause destruction, but usually what else, what else comes with storm is rain and rain produces life. It's water, it's new life. Yes. It comes from that. So. Come on, okay, come through. I got all my snaps. Yes, yes, yes. So yes to overflow in 2020. Okay. Um, my next question for you, Leah, is what is next for you? I know you've you've dominated your goals so far this year. Half of them. I least. said I was working. Well, you, I mean, you working? What? What? So what, what? What do you have going on? What? What else can we look forward, uh, or look for from you? Well, I am new to the ACLU. I actually moved to New York the week of the pandemic. I moved on Monday. It was declared the pandemic on Wednesday and everything mm-hmm. shut down by Friday. Wow. So I am looking forward to exploring uh, new opportunities while I'm at the ACLU. I'm looking forward to deepening my understanding and my contribution to racial justice work. I'm looking forward to, um, you know, living in a city that is open at some yeah. point. Um, <laughs> And just continuing on my journey with trying to find out other ways, trying to identify and amplify other ways of showing up for Black. Amen. Yes. So that's what we stand for here. So mm-hmm. Love it. We love to see it. Okay. Well, final question is just more so for how can our listeners get connected to stay connected with you, with the work that you're doing and supporting you and all of those efforts? And hold on, Leah, before you answer that, I just want to say this one little tidbit too. I'm sorry, I, I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you finish. <laughs> um, but the, I just want to say that greatness runs in in Leah's family. Um, if some of you guys remember from what is season two? I think season two, when we used to do our melanated mini segment. I just wanted to plug this real quick. Oh, yeah. Leah, oh my we, sweetheart. Yes, we, we actually featured Leah's niece, Eden Watson, who happens to be a magnificent author who, yes. uh, who wrote the book Dance Is, and we featured her as one of our melanated minis. So, you know, the, the apple don't fall far from the tree. That's all I'm saying. That's all I want to say. How can our listeners connect with you, Leah? Well, I want to plug for my sweetheart that uh, Dance Is is an amazing book and has beautiful illustrations is available on Amazon. So I recommend dances highly um, by my sweet, my sweet niece and my sister. Um, Yes. Yes. Aaron. Yes. Aaron. Um, Yes. I would love to connect, continue this discussion. I am on LinkedIn. My name is Leah Watson. You can find me searching ACLU. I'm also on Twitter, Leah Watson ESQ for Leah Watson Esquire. And I would love to keep in contact and to have this continue this conversation. Yes, 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 yes. Do you have like a, um, is there a way that we could have access or we would just need to contact you? And when I say we, I mean the listeners to contact you to get more information on Protect. Is there like a PDF or something? I do have a PDF. Okay. So I will send that to you. Okay. That way we'd love to, you know, plug that into our our uh, blog notes and website and all that. 
so yes. you can access it. So you guys, again, just connect with, um, if you want to connect with Leah, she again is on LinkedIn as Leah Watson and on Twitter as Leah Watson ESQ. We'll con- um, have all um, those links and everything in our show notes, as well as the guide for Protect. If you um, are interesting in um, learning more about that and how you can um, utilize that on your own campus or, you know, learn more about um, it as well. Um, but we want to just thank Aaliyah again yes. so, so much for dropping jams and just for, you know, all encompassing on the work that she's doing um, yeah. behind the scenes, on the front lines. We really do appreciate um, the things that you do. Um, yeah. I want to thank you both for having me, also for having Melanated converse- Conversations, just a space to have these conversations, which was so necessary. And thank you for all the gems that you have dropped because I am over here snapping with my warm, fuzzy feelings um, <laughs> as well. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Leah. Thank you for saying yes to us. Mm-hmm. Um, although I feel like it shouldn't have been hard for you to say yes anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, thank you for uh, saying yes. Thank you for the candidness. Thank you for educating us. Thank you for making making everything clear and, you know, just able to understand some of these things. You didn't really, you didn't use any legalism or legal jargon that we could, where right. we could understand anything. So that was great. Thank you for that. And um, gosh, please keep, keep doing the work. Not all superheroes wear capes, but they, they happen to be black women that live in New York. I just, I'm just <laughs> Um, but no, like Terry mentioned, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if there's any way that we can continue to support, you know, Terry and I are here behind you all the way. And, and if we need to yes. know, get things out to our listeners, definitely let us know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're definitely willing to share. Um, and again, to our listeners, thank you so much for, you know, continuously rocking with us. We're in our third season, y'all. Y'all still wow. that. Um, but you know, this show is not about Terry and I, it, it's, it's about us as black women as a whole to amplify our voices, um, to mm. share our stories of transformation, to celebrate in our successes and sharing our lessons together. And, um, we thank you for continuously, um, helping us to keep these conversations going. Um, but I mean, I guess that wraps us for today. I hate to go. I know. I'm kind of. This has been so great. (laughs) Yeah. It's like food for our soul. Yes. Yes. And maybe when the world reopens, when the U.S. opens, we can come at least to New York to see you. But right right now, y'all blocking Texas. Y'all want y'all want no parts with us. Which I I I don't blame y'all. To get on that act right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame New York. (laughs) I know the tables have turned. (laughs) Right. Right, right. Um, Well, I guess until then, melanate on that. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our chat today. Keep the conversation going by heading to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leaving us a review. Have a story of your own to share? Email us at info at melanatedconversations.com or connect with us on social media at Melanated Conversations. Till next time, keep raising your voice. voice.